Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have chosen to reveal yourself to such as we. As low as we are, and none of us are, none of us were born noble or wealthy or powerful or of the greatest wisdom. But you have chosen to reveal your Son to us, and we are so thankful. Lord, I know that not everybody here knows you. I think we can be reasonably confident when we're in a group of people that not everybody knows you as Lord and Savior. Not everybody trusts in the gospel. We certainly live in a city that reflects that truth. But that in no way keeps you from revealing yourself to people. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself. And, Father, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, I I pray that you will strengthen us and encourage us through the truth that is proclaimed by these words and that we'll grow in our faith and grow in our love for you. And that we'll grow in our ability to worship you as you are. Not as we imagine you to be. And not as our, our faulty thinking sometimes leads us to think of you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going from the beginning. That's why I gave you the example that I did. We need to pursue holiness as followers of Jesus Christ. And yes, that means purposely obeying God and purposely not sinning. It takes effort. It's difficult. But we need to do that. We need to pursue holiness. We don't want to be tempted to turn aside like Esau after the fleeting pleasures of sin. Those things are temporary. Why? Because we have not come to an analogy. We've come into the real presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews teaches. So, so far in the book of Hebrews, um, I've highlighted the major portions of truth that are taught. Um, Jesus is greater. That's the main theme of Hebrews. The main exhortation is, so hold fast to him. But this is the way he kind of lays it out, the author of the book of Hebrews. First he starts, and he says that Jesus is a complete revelation of God to man. Not only his person, but also his, his work, what he accomplished on earth. He is greater than angels. He's a greater human res- rep- representative. You know, as, as Paul says in, in uh, chapter 5 of Romans, we're born being represented by Adam, because Adam was the first man. And we're born with him as our spiritual head. He represented us before God. But he was fallen in his end, and so were we. But Jesus Christ is our new spiritual head, our new representative. It isn't that we were, we're automatically purified when we believe in Jesus all on our own and that we never sin again. No, it's that our perfect human representative is sinless and he always intercedes for us. Jesus Christ is our perfect human representative. He's a greater leader than Moses, a greater prophet. He gives us a greater Sabbath rest than Joshua led the people into in the, in the land of Israel. He's a greater priest than Aaron or any of the other priests. And he has a better ministry. He gave a better sacrifice. It was better blood. And that blood seals us in a greater covenant with better promises. Because those promises are not like with Israel. And it's, it, with Israel, it was usually centered around the land and around blessing in the land. God has promised us a better home. 
behind me on the thing. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. We're not just talking about this present earth that's corrupt because of sin. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth that's purified forever. So we have better promises and a better covenant through Jesus Christ. And because we have a better promise, because we have better sacrifice, because we have a better high priest, he says, pay more careful attention. Because the ones who ignored Moses, they died in the wilderness. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Watch out and don't turn away. Chapter four, make every effort to enter that rest. If it was important that the children of Israel fought against the people who were living in the land that God had promised them so that they could enter into that rest that he gave them, and that was for the life, you know, the normal lifespan of a person, how much greater when your eternity is at stake should your effort be? Make every effort to enter rest in Christ. And let's press on toward maturity. That maturity which is holiness. And then in in chapter 10, these sort of general exhortations that cover all of Christian life, draw near to God. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to your Savior. And exhort and encourage each other. So in chapter 12, broke it down like this. In chapter 1 through 4, he gives this great metaphor of a race. What is the race, right? Because if you just tell somebody, yeah, you got to run that race. Well, I think most people would understand you're talking about how to live your life, but it doesn't necessarily connect it uh, with being a Christian. And so, so what we see is that he's talking about the, the, the race of perseverance, trusting in Christ, and pursuing holiness day by day. Looking at God's word, discerning your errors, asking the Lord to discern your errors and help you to live a life that's pleasing to him. Looking at Christ and saying, how can, I, how can I live the life that Christ lived and be the witness that Christ was and be the influence in this world that Christ was for other people? In 5 through 11, he says along the way, even though there's going to be a lot of struggle in trying to be holy, there's also going to be some discipline. Because God has called you as children. And so you're going to have trials. You're going to have discipline. Parents discipline their children because they want them to turn out right. They want them to be raised right. They want them to go out in the world and be successful. And God is our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, wants us to live lives that bring Him glory. Wants us to live lives that result in our being in eternity with him. And so as a good heavenly father, he's going to allow trials, suffering, all sorts of things into our lives to lead us to him and to keep us following. And then last week, we looked at the fact that it's not a competition with each other. You know, in a a race, you want to be number one. In the Christian race, you need to help your brothers and sisters. And they're going to help you. It is a team effort. So this week, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole text and then we're going to go through little by little. I think it's important to look at it that way. He says, we're going to start in uh, verse 18 and I'm going to read through, I'm going to read through verse 24. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, 
to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking that words of those that, I'm sorry, uh, a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged and no fur- that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I recognize that that doesn't make perfect sense to all of you. Seems kind of strange. He's talking about mountains and fire and what? what? Well, what he's doing is he's calling to mind for his Hebrew audience what happened when God delivered the children of Israel and took them out into the desert. Does anybody remember what God delivered the children of Israel from uh, Egypt to do? He delivered them to go into the promised land? Is that what he told Pharaoh to do? Let them go so they can go into the promised land? No. He said, let them go out into the wilderness so they can worship me. That's what he said. And that's what Moses told to Pharaoh. Let them go out into the wilderness so they can worship me. And when they did... Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read some portions of this. I may just read big portions because I think it's important for you to understand. God had told Moses when he first met him back in Exodus chapter 3 that the sign that it's me who's speaking to you is that when you come out of that land, when Pharaoh does let you go and he sends out all the people, just like I'm telling you he will, you're going to worship me on this mountain. That's what he told him. And in Exodus chapter 19, we find the children of Israel near the foot of the mountain. And God says, I'm going to come near. And I just want you to hear that just in in his own words. Um, In chapter 19, this is how Moses begins. He says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together and said, we'll do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them, set them apart and Uh, today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai and the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, 
Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. And then on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on the top of the mountain and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. Then Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people that they don't force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Notice that God had originally commanded Moses to put limits around the mountain so that nobody can come up to it. And then he calls Moses up on the mountain and then he tells him again, I'm going to speak to the people, but make sure you go back and tell the people again. Moses is like, but I, I don't know how high the mountain was, but I, can't, I can imagine Moses looking down and going, but you, you already told me to do that. And God says, no, this is really important. Why? Two very important reasons. Because the Lord is holy. And because an encounter with the Lord uninvited will kill you. That's what he said. The Lord's going to come down on the mountain. And if you are not consecrated, set apart, made clean according to the way I've told you to be clean, then don't you dare even set a foot on that mountain or you will die. The Old Testament is filled with people who misunderstood and did not treat the Lord's, the Lord's, or the Lord or the Lord's things with holiness, uh, with the appropriate way, and they died. Uzzah, when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he died. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's older sons, when they offered an offering not according to the way that God had said, he killed them, burned them up in fire that came out from before him because they did not regard him as holy and regard his word. And so when he says, when he talks about this mountain in 18 through, I think, 21, he says, this is just like that, but it's even greater. Remember that theme, Jesus is greater? Remember in chapter one when he said he has fully revealed himself now through Jesus Christ in a way that he never revealed himself before through prophets? He says, you have not come to a mountain that can, uh, that can be touched. Now think about what he's saying, because in the original text here in Exodus, he said, don't touch the mountain and you'll die. So here he's saying, you're not coming to a physical mountain. Now 
burning with fire. The idea is you're coming to God in all his holiness. Not just a mountain. Not an analogy. Not a depiction. Not just some side of example. So that you can comprehend. You're coming into the real holiness of God. Burning with fire. Darkness, gloom, and a storm. When I read this, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about when God uh, called Elijah to Mount Horeb, and he shook the mountain, and there was a whirlwind, and there was lightning, and the text, I think it's Second Kings, tells us that God wasn't in the whirlwind, he wasn't in the lightning, he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the earthquake, he was in the still small voice. These are physical representations so we can understand the power of God so that the people could understand the power of God. And they did, didn't they? They trembled. Moses says, even I was shaking. I was terrified at a display of the power of God. The trumpet blast. Did you notice? I don't know if you noticed or not. I didn't notice the first time I read it last week. Nobody's blowing the trumpet. There's no trumpet player in Exodus 19. God tells Moses, when you hear the trumpet blast, then you'll know that it's time to approach the mountain. And the only people who come up are you and the priests that I've set aside. And then Moses goes down, and on the morning of the third day, they see the storm, they, hear, they feel the shaking, they see the fire, they see the smoke, And then the ram horn blasts and everyone trembles. I would too. Nobody's blowing a horn. This is coming from God himself or an angel or somewhere, but it's it's not written that anybody played the trumpet. God was calling the people to himself. The voice speaking words. You know, again, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, um, after God speaks the Ten Commandments, The people beg Moses. You just tell us what God says. You go up there, you listen to God. We can't hear his voice or hear these words pronounced. We're going to die if we hear anything more. I think two things are going on there. Two things are very important. One, it's one thing to hear and to say and to imagine, oh, I'm going to hear God speak. It sounds kind of exciting, right? I'm telling you that if God truly spoke to you in a voice from heaven, you would tremble just like they did. And if he spoke out his word to you in the middle of your sinfulness, you would say, please stop speaking or I will die. And the people trembled. And they begged, don't, don't speak anymore. But the author of Hebrews is calling that symbol that, that day to mind and he's saying, that's not the mountain you've come to. They couldn't bear what was commanded. And this is why I wanted to talk about God's holiness. He says they couldn't bear the commandment. Why? Because it pointed to the holiness of God. It is awesome to talk about the holiness of God until you start talking about your own sinfulness and realizing it. He says at the end of this chapter, our God is a consuming fire. 
And you could read through the Psalms and you could read through Isaiah about the consuming fire of God destroying people in His wrath. To say that God is a consuming fire is not like a necessarily a comforting word that you speak to encourage somebody who's trapped in sin. That's not going to be necessarily an encouragement to them unless they know Christ. Our God is a consuming fire. It's fearful. It's fearful to imagine the holiness of God if you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner and the holiness of God doesn't scare you, that should be a big red flag. Because they were told if even an animal touches the mountain, and keep in mind, this was not the fullness of God's presence. God was choosing to manifest himself in specific ways to show the people his holiness and his power and to speak to them his word. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses says, I'm trembling with fear. Um, if, you, if you have an NIV, your Bible will point you to Deuteronomy chapter 9 where Moses talks about his fear um, when the people had sinned after he came down from the mountain and they were celebrating you know, in their pagan way after they had gotten Aaron to make the, the calves of gold. But I think that what the author of Hebrews is pointing to here is Moses' own testimony that said, when that ram's horn blasted and we could see the smoke and the fire, everybody in the camp trembled. And so he's saying, I was there too. I was, I was shaking right with the rest, rest of them because even the prophet understood. And we see this, right? We see this in Isaiah when God uh, uh, gives Isaiah a vision of himself in the temple and he sees God's holiness and he recognizes that even if this is a vision, he's in terrible trouble because he's a sinner. God's holiness reveals his sinfulness, And when Jesus revealed himself in a miracle in front of Peter in that huge catch of fish, Peter falls down to the ground and he goes, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, because the holiness of God reveals the sinfulness of man. That's why they trembled with fear. But the author of Hebrews is not talking about Mount Sinai. He's talking about Mount Zion. There are a ton of references in the Old Testament to Mount Zion. Many times they're actually talking about the mountain in Israel where God would cause his name to dwell. And it would be an allusion to the temple itself. It would be an allusion to God's victory. And you can see that in a whole lot of different places where you can see God pointing to who he is his victory, and even later where he talks about the punishment that that they would undergo. But then in the prophets, whenever they would look forward to the time of the Messiah, and they would talk about salvation coming from Mount Zion. I can't remember the psalm, but it was in my head a little bit ago. Where he's saying, oh, Psalm 14, 6, there it is. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And this is a look forward at Christ to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what you're coming to, he says, the author of Hebrews, to his Hebrew audience when he's extolling the greatness of Jesus Christ and the covenant that God made for people between uh, himself and people through Jesus Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem, uh, uh, you can go back to Galatians chapter four and see the comparison that Paul makes between the, the Jerusalem that's on earth at that day and the new Jerusalem that's gonna come down out of heaven. And he says, we belong to that heavenly city. 
You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Why are the angels rejoicing? The angels rejoice at the death of his righteous ones because they're being brought home. The angels rejoice with the Father in heaven when a sinner repents. And the angels, as the author of Hebrews has already told us, they're ministering spirits, serving those who will receive salvation. So they're rejoicing because the assembly has come home. He says, to the church of the firstborn. You know, the firstborn refers to Jesus. The firstborn of the dead. The first one to be resurrected to new and everlasting life. And also the firstborn in the sense that he is heir to the whole earth. That he's the unique one from the Father. This term firstborn means a whole lot of things in connection with Jesus. Whose names are written in heaven. Remember in Luke when Jesus told the disciples who had come back after preaching and they were so, they were so excited because they saw the power of God displayed through their lives as they obeyed Jesus' words and preached the gospel. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that you're part of this kingdom. What he says here is you've come to God the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Remember earlier when he talked about um, the law and its inability to make people perfect, to make the worshipers perfect. It could not make those worshipers perfect because it was just the blood of bulls and goats. It was the first covenant, not the perfect one. It was shadows, types, symbols, pictures, foreshadowings of what Christ would do. He says, you haven't come to another example. You've come to God. Listen to me. This is, this is a point that we need to understand so well. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in the presence of God. Actually, in Ephesians, talks about the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him far above all uh, rulers and all authorities and all powers is working in your life and has worked in life and has seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. Do you understand that your spiritual position, if you're in Christ, is with God? You're in his presence. And he says, this is why holiness is so important because you're in the presence of God. This is why it's so important for you to embrace and pursue holiness. You've come to his presence and to the unbeliever. You've been called to the foot of the mountain. The real mountain of God, the real Mount Zion. You may not see fire on the mountain right this second like the Israelites did. You may not feel the shaking of the mountain. You may not be trembling in fear, but I hope and I pray that you are. I hope that you are trembling with fear in the presence of the living God as you look and you see the one that calls you into this presence.
The one who says, draw near. In chapter 10, he said, draw near. The way's open. Draw near in worship. I'm calling you out of this sinful world like I called my people out of Egypt to worship me. The way is open through Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the trailblazer, the one who made the, place, made the trail possible, the one who paved the way for you to come to God and to come up on the mountain. When Jesus preached on the mountain, he was not preaching on the top of the mountain and the people were at the bottom waiting for to be told what he said. He brought them up the mountain. It wasn't an accident that that Matthew told the story in this way. Jesus calls us up onto the mountain into the presence of God. That's why I think it's verse 25 when he says, so don't ignore the one who's speaking. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this is a strange statement, isn't it? You might need to go back to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to take you back there now because we have plenty of time. Genesis chapter 4, after Cain and Abel had offered their their offerings and uh, God had accepted and looked with favor on Abel's and he had not looked with favor, didn't even look at Cain's. Something wrong, something was wrong with Cain's offering. God gave him the opportunity to correct himself and he said, you know, if you did what was right, you'd be accepted. And instead of doing what was right, Cain continued on in his anger and he murdered his brother. Instead of recognizing that he needed to repent and that something was wrong in his own heart, he killed the one who stood as a symbol of his failure. That's the same thing they did to Jesus. Instead of recognizing that he was showing them the true light of heaven and, sh- and convicting them of their sin, instead of taking that opportunity to repent, the leaders and then all the people, or at least most of the people, were in agreement and said, crucify him, kill him, he shouldn't live. In Genesis chapter 4, after, um, after Cain had killed his brother, the Lord came to Cain and he said, what have you done? He said, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground. Whenever I read uh, verse 13 for the first time, he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. That's what Cain says to the Lord. And then he mentions being driven from the land. He doesn't mention anything about his brother. He doesn't like his punishment. Nobody does. But it doesn't drive him to repentance. I can imagine the scene. I can imagine Cain looking down at his brother's body, at the blood pooling around his brother, soaking into the earth. But instead of being repentant, instead of seeking the weight that he, the weight of the sin that he had committed, not only against his brother Cain, or against his brother Abel, 
but also against the God who created him. It was an assault on the image of God that he engaged in that day when he killed his brother. A rejection of the conviction of God and the opportunity for repentance that he had. And I imagine, because of what the Bible tells me, that he watched his brother's blood leak into the ground and he felt nothing. Or maybe he thought, he's gotten away with it. God didn't do anything. I wonder if when God spoke to him, he's offering the opportunity of repentance. Cain, what did you do? But then he says, your, bro- your brother's blood cries to me. What was it crying for? Was it saying sin has been committed? The holiness of God has been assaulted. God has been rebelled against. Where is the justice? In Revelation chapter 6, John says he saw the souls of those who had been killed for their faith. And he said they were crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Was his blood calling out for revenge? For punishment? For the end of all the wicked? In Matthew 23, Jesus talked about the blood of Abel again. And he said, of the generation, of that generation who rejected him, he said, all the blood of all the prophets from righteous Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechai, who was killed in between the altar and I think the door of the most holy place, would be laid on this generation. It's calling out for justice. It's calling out for vengeance. Abel's blood cried out for justice. But he says that Jesus' blood still speaks. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out too. What does it say? Now, I'm not one for just emotional pleading, but I do love you all. And if you don't know Christ, I am pleading with you all to put your faith in him, to take his hand and come up and up the mountain. But I don't want to offer you just empty words. I want to offer you what the word of God says. In chapter 9, this is, this is where I wanted to go in chapter 9, because chapter 9 talks about the superior blood of Christ how it triumphed where all the blood of animals could not triumph. And I'm going to tell you what he said. I'm going to give you a concise version. If you want the, the, uh, the exact words of the Bible, then I've given you the verse references here. You can go back later. But in 11 through the end of chapter 9, this is what he says. This is what the blood of Christ testifies to you. He says, you've been redeemed forever. You have been redeemed as Christ is on the cross and his blood is dripping down and he says it's finished and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That blood trickling down says you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He says you are truly holy. The blood of bulls and goats, that could make you outwardly clean. But you're truly holy in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus calls out and says, it's not just outwardly, but inwardly. 
Your conscience has been cleansed. The blood says you're free now to serve the living God. The blood says the eternal eternal inheritance. Those promises, they belong to you. You've been set free from your sins. That record of all your sins, Jesus carried it to the cross and he left it nailed there. You're the people of the covenant. In verse 19, I would caution you to look back at this. He talks about how Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled the people and he sprinkled the book. The book was the words of the covenant and the people were those who were from Israel, who were there, who were present, who were welcomed into covenant relationship with God. But that covenant got broken a long time ago because the people were unfaithful. That blood that was shed on the cross was sprinkled on you if your faith is in Christ. And if you're standing at the foot of the mountain wondering if you can go up, I'm telling you, you can. Because that blood has been sprinkled for you. You're forgiven. Verse 22. And you've been purified. Verse 23. That's what the blood of Jesus is saying. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out, justice has been satisfied. All the wrath of God was laid on Jesus. The wrath for your sin, the wrath for mine. The wrath for anyone who will come in faith. Listen. This point that he's bringing us to in Hebrews, this is a summary of all the truth that the author's been trying to tell his audience. That God is speaking to us. It's the basis for all the exhortations that he gives. So don't miss it. Secondly, you're not being called to draw near to an example for a glimpse, for a vision, a parable, an analogy. The word of God today is calling you to draw near to the true and living God. And it's saying to you, the way has been opened for for you by Jesus through his blood. Come on in. Come on out of the world. So let me ask you, are you ready to come to him to worship him? If you're ready, you can worship him. He's opened the way. There's nothing else to be done. Jesus said it's finished. All you have to do is come. Romans says that whoever cries out, whoever cries out, save me. Whoever cries on the name or calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and God raised him again for your justification, you can cry out for mercy and he will save you. 
not as an analogy, but in fact. Just as the book of Hebrews has been telling us all along, Jesus is greater because he's calling us into the real presence of God to worship him. Nothing for you to do but just call out in faith. Save me. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray. And if you know that you need to trust in Jesus Christ, then just call out and ask him to save you. And he will. If you have, then thank him. Praise him. Because what that means is to put it in the terms of the analogy that we had before, Jesus just blew you up off your two-dimensional world and showed you his reality. That's what's happened. Praise him and thank him. That's the conclusion that the author of Hebrews is going to take us to. But I wanted us to see this moment, this real confrontation with the actual presence of God so that we can respond as we should. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blood that's been shed for us. Thank you for Jesus who carries us up onto the mountain. Thank you for Jesus who welcomes us into the holy city. Thank you for Jesus who has made us perfect forever. Not outwardly only, but inwardly. Thank you for Jesus who promises us an eternity. And as Peter says, that promise is never going to fade. That inheritance is never going to diminish. It's never going to be destroyed or, or, or changed with time. Thank you for what you've done through Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you are always faithful to save all those who come to you in faith. God, I pray that you would help us to live lives of holiness, that we would take this truth and we would respond appropriately to it, and we would live lives of holiness for the sake of the one who died for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.